This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You have probably heard, I, I, I hope, if you're tuned into what's going on in the city, you've been following this story. There's going to be, or there is a proposed huge condo development, well, tall, huge, tall condo development on the site of CHCH's studios on Jackson Street. Now, it was supposed to be 40 stories, give or take, but city planners are giving their thumbs down to this, want it not to be that tall. It was going to be, I think, 620 residential units, and they were going to sell for 220000 to a million dollars each. Again, give or take a little bit. But now that looks like it may not happen as originally planned. It may have to be a scaled-down version of that. I know that was talked about on this station earlier today. It's a fascinating topic, but I want to take it one little step further, and that is if we're looking at this as height, numbers, size, all these kind of things, what kind of development do we want in the city? What kind of city do we want to build? What do we want to bring here? What are we okay with? What are we not okay with? It's a complicated thing. It's a difficult thing. It's got something to do with gentrification and aesthetics and all kinds of other stuff. Well, the counselor for that ward, Ward 2, is Jason Farr. Uh, He is a guy we love having on this show. We try to get him on as often as we can. He joins us again, sir. Thanks for doing this today. Am I going to feel rushed again? I hope not. We're going to try and time it better. Last time I had to hustle you off right at the end. I'll I'll try not to do that tonight. It's because I was blabbing on. So let's get right to it, Scott. Well, one thing I want to clear up, because I actually heard a couple people say this today. I want to clear this up before we start. This has nothing to do with the anti-gentrification thing with Lock Street and everything. This report, just to be clear, was done and worked on well before anybody started arguing about gentrification. This is not that. I wouldn't even suspect, even if uh, it was, which it wasn't, uh, after the Lock Street events of just a few weeks ago, that that would uh, at all influence our planners when they're making the planning decisions, they're basing it on all sorts of policies. Uh, We may embed in the secondary plan some policies that say for big developments like this in only the downtown footprint that you may want to contemplate some sort of percentage of affordability. And then maybe you could use that argument to some small capacity. But no, this application was actually in long before the December 31st deadline in 2017. So uh, hence, Mr. Lamb's able to do his O&B appeal. And, and, and our planners wouldn't have, uh, no, not, not related. Not related at all. Okay. No. Jason, there are, though, two, I th- there's probably more than two, but we're going to count the two really clear schools of thought on this one. One is... Sure. We want to bring as many people to the downtown, build up density. We want to make downtown thriving. The more people you have downtown, the more money that's put into restaurants and stores and the local economy and everything builds up. That's one thing. Let's let's build up the downtown as much as we can. The other is let's not have buildings that really tower everything else and maybe become an eyesore or at least a visual impediment. We want to keep the appearance of downtown as it is, and we can throw in that gentrification thing. We don't want to drive up prices in the downtown so much that people are moved out. Which side do you fall on generally? Which way do you lean generally in that? Well, I think if there's any place in our city where we can build up in any big Canadian city, it is the center of the city. And so absolutely, there's room for all sorts of densities. We have more surface parking lots in that footprint that we're talking about than any other Canadian city. Maybe Winnipeg rivals us just a little bit. Uh, And so there's tremendous opportunities. When I first met Brad Lamb, it was a year and a half ago, and I went, wow, that's a lot for a bit of a postage stamp, and uh, you're probably in for an uphill battle. 
talked about existing zoning rules, how he was way above and beyond those. Told him about the feisty Duran Neighborhood Association, even said to him that the land was going to meet the wolf in that capacity. All of that stuff came to fruition. But I did also say to him, you know, there's some surface parking lots, swaths of them, uh, in spitting distance where something like this may work. Or will you contemplate something smaller instead of a 40-something story tower at the time and a 30-something story tower next to it? So we're talking about two, star- two towers, actually, with the right. television city development. So there's room. I, and to answer your question, I'm, there's there's a lot of uh, considerations. And, and you're asking at a good time. And maybe next week, if you've got time, we'll come on again because we'll make public on Monday our downtown secondary plan, which speaks to a lot of the elements that you uh, – led your question with here, Scott, we can build density and add to the vitality and service more businesses and see more restaurants and do all those things and get downtown thriving like it was back in the 40s and 50s. But we can also be inclusive with our planning policy and we can address gentrification without throwing rocks in donut shop windows. We can actually do it through a zoning policy. And we're going to have some densities attached to the new policies. Uh, some heights that we've probably never seen before in that downtown secondary plan map, but only uh, heights that you can get to if you follow all those policies and those zoning rules that will be attached to those heights. So is it, it has to be great design. It has to be stepped back. You have to appreciate, like you were trying to tell in the denial uh, with the application with land, the surrounding area, wind and sun studies and all of those things. So you, you can have the densities while still appreciating the existing neighborhoods and even add some policies that say uh, we need to stay inclusive and, 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 and provide units uh, to folks who may not otherwise have the opportunity, who, want to, who live already in the area and want to stay in the area. And I think we're going to do that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chat with Councillor Jason Farr about downtown development, specifically around this 40-story proposed tower that the planning department has said, nah, that may be a little too much for what we're trying to do here. And Jason, I'm wondering if, if this is, if thumbs down is given to this, and there's been talk in the past that Hamilton would at some point love to have some sort of identifiable signature building that would really, you know, when you look at the skyline of Hamilton, that would really make it unique. Does this create a precedent that would say that if someone came along, and you you mentioned the word attractive or or aesthetically appealing, does this prevent someone down the road if there was an unusual circumstance with some great design that we would say, no, this is as high as it can possibly go. We've already locked in. Well, if you're talking about height, Scott, yeah, I I guess. But design, I think, sets the precedent more than the height. we have a rule now. We're going to have a rule likely, you know, likelihood it'll be public Monday, so I can't talk too much to it. And in fact, I need to read it myself in entirety. <laughs> but the secondary plan will have a rule that you can only, the tallest buildings in the core can only be as tall as the escarpment. It's the escarpment rule. And in fact, uh, in that piece of Durand, the television city proposal would have meant that you can only go as high as 22 because you're sitting on a higher pocket of land there. But that doesn't mean you can't be iconic. Good design, you can stand out. Help the Lister block stands out, and it's only six stories tall. Uh, and, and from a heritage sense, that's one of the most appealing buildings in our core. Uh, so, no, there, there are things you can do. Grandcore, for example, his fifth and final phase with uh, Darko Branch uh, is on now. They're about four or five stories up, but uh, it's well underway. And uh, to see that design, that may be considered iconic. You'll like it being a sports guy. It's got a bit of a football shape, and it will definitely stand out. But again, only as high as the escarpment. 
uh, but of the other four that he's already developed over the last seven, eight years, I think people are going to be excited when it's when it's when it's completed. The other three towers that are already uh, uh, approved, uh, Rudy Spallacci and, and Valerie, uh, with the Royal Canard, also some very exciting designs there, and, and and we're certain that they'll stick to it, being local guys who have take a lot of pride in their work. So, yeah, I mean, are we going to have a 50-story tower? You're going to need a zoning change in the future. You need one if you were to do it today, and I'm not certain that we would approve it given that we're looking at more vibrant communities with great design inclusive type uh, of planning as opposed to that one-off that you know towers over all the others and actually affects land speculation all around it as well because if you let one do it others think they can't exactly exactly on these surface parking lots forever and and try to build the next great iconic building is this only jason is we're looking at close to three thousand units uh, that are Hmm approved in site plan approval and so one iconic building that gets you a thousand versus you know three thousand of you know several probably there's a dozen or more buildings right now in site plan gonna happen three thousands a little under it's 2900 change uh and many of those buildings are going to be very exciting but they don't need to be super tall the acclimation when done right there on jam street north people are going to love it they may call that iconic as well and it's only eight stories tall is this only? Is this zoning or not the zoning? Is the new plan that's going to be coming out? Does it only cover the downtown? Like, what if someone on yeah. the mountain decided they wanted to build one that was forty stories? Uh, yeah, so Hunter to Cannon, uh, Wellington to Queen—that's the footprint we're talking about—and then uh, the, the spine along James North and James South. Anybody, anytime with planning can come from anywhere and say, "I've got a parcel in Upper Gage in Mohawk, and I want to build forty-five stories." And if you got a great planner and you do your homework and you like I always say, engage as the owner or developer or proponent with the immediate community as early as you can and as often as you can. And most developers do that in the core, and I appreciate it very much, and I know the neighbors do. And they all say, sounds great. We want a sand tower next to our suburban community. Go tell Councillor Jackson we're on. It may come to a council decision to say, yeah, we can approve a zoning variance, a zoning change. That would be a massive undertaking. <laughs> it's highly unlikely in the scenario, the hypothetical scenario I provided, but Anyone, anywhere, anytime can appeal and apply to the city to change zones. It is uh, it is going to be interesting. Again, this plan comes out Monday, which, uh, as yeah. I understand it, is a it pretty much covers the whole downtown as to what you would be able to do development wise, and that would, I guess, include it would clearly include this television city tower yes, and what is able to be done. Uh, uh, Councillor Jason Farr, we may well take you up next week on that and uh, and go over that, but I appreciate your time tonight for sure. Thanks. And, and if you have a chance the Loyola Miami replay. <laughs> Amazing Final Four basketball already, Scotty. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate yeah. it. Councillor Jason Farr. Uh, it, you know, it's a really interesting one because, as I say, this is one tower, and I know it's been talked about on this station. I know you've been listening to it, and I know you've been following this story, and you're going, mm, I don't know, do I support a developer building a huge tower or not? To me, it's not really about this one tower. It is what is the plan that we want to have for the city? Do we want towers, big, big, big towers, or do we not? Do we want to have a, well, as Jason Farr just said, an escarpment rule that you can't build higher than the top of the escarpment? Interesting way of looking at it. I suspect that when that plan comes out on Monday, that will be, or something very close to it is what we will hear. And so anytime someone wants to build one now, don't plan on going any higher than that. What do you think about that? 
send me an email. Love to hear from you. Radley at 900CHML.com. Should we be doing that? Or should we be saying, bring it on. Whatever you want to do, we're okay with it. More people, the more the merrier. Let me know. Love to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900CHML. You do know we've got a provincial election coming up, right? I know you know. Because you're hearing all about it all the time. And you do know that not that far off in the all that distant future. I mean, it's still a ways away, but we will have a federal election coming up. And the, unless something bizarre happens, which seems very unlikely, the three main party leaders who will be running in that election are now in place. All three parties are locked in with their leaders. Again, we saw what happened with the Conservatives in Ontario. So I suppose anything is possible. You could have something flare up and a leader has to step down. However, barring, as I say, something wild that we could not possibly anticipate, we now know who our three main party leaders are for the provincial election coming up in Ontario. And we know who our three main party leaders are who are coming up for our federal election a year and some away. But... We all know how politics works now. The election federally has already essentially begun. Everything that happens is about politics. Every move they make is about getting themselves in better position to win down the road. There may not be signs on the lawns, but you know what's going on. But over the last little while, as everything has now, I mean, especially after last weekend, when now the Conservatives elected Doug Ford and all the parties for provincial and federal now have their people in place, I I couldn't help but get the feeling personally and listening to other people on other talk shows and around the water cooler and out in public, I don't get the sense that a whole lot of people are feeling wildly inspired by really any of their choices. And I'd love to hear from you tonight. I want to hear from you. When you look at, and again, I know the federal election is down the road, but knowing who's going to be running. When you look in the Ontario election, when you look at Kathleen Wynne or Doug Ford or Andrea Horvath, do you feel a sense that, man, I can't wait to get to the polls to vote for one of those people? I know you vote for your own person, but essentially you're voting for the leader. I can't wait to go. I would be on cloud nine when one of those people becomes our premier. Do do you have that feeling? Or do you more have the feeling of, I know it's my responsibility as a, as a citizen to vote, but man, you're making it tough on me to choose one of these ones. And the same with federally. I mean, Justin Trudeau, a couple of years ago, eh, so many people were saying, oh, I can't wait to vote for Justin Trudeau. Sunny ways, he's wonderful, blah, blah. His personal ratings have gone. <laughs> Jugmeet Singh is now in the midst of this situation where he's having to defend speaking at separatist, seek separatist rallies that is, you know, with terrorists and on a, you've got um, Andrew Shear who essentially is for all intents and purposes, the invisible man. What do you know about Andrew Shear other than he's a conservative leader and he's got dimples. That, that seems to be his um, right now. Anyway, his, his, Big thing. His his platform is, hey, when I smile, I've got dimples. I don't know if that's going to carry all that far. I mean, Justin Trudeau got a long way on hair and socks, so who knows. But are you moved? Are you inspired? Are you excited 
about electing any of these people? Or are, the, are you looking at this saying, I, I'm going to vote. I hope you're going to say at least I'm going to vote, at the very least. But not with enthusiasm. Where are you on this one? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. When you look at your options, and again, I do understand that you vote in your own writing, so you're not directly voting. You're not directly voting for the leaders. You're voting for your person, but you're voting for the leader, essentially. I mean, for most of us, I would argue that many people, when they go to the polls, when they go to cast their ballot, many people don't even really know who the person is that they're voting for in their ward or who they want to. They're voting for the party. The leader is more often than not who you're voting for. So who are you voting for? Are you excited about your options? Now, I just got an email pointing out that there are other parties that are running in this. That is absolutely true. There are other parties that will be running in this election. I grant you that. That said... While those people, while there may be leaders of those parties that inspire us more, is there a single human being in Ontario or in Canada that believes that the provincial election will not be won by the Conservatives, the Liberals, or the NDP? Is there anybody in Canada that believes the same about those parties? Is there anybody who thinks that somehow the Green Party is actually going to win an election? or the Communist Party, or one of the other smaller parties. Is there any, So while there may be leaders out there who we do like or who we do feel more tied to or more happy about, not a real, that's not really what we're talking about today because the chances of them winning don't exist. They're not going to win. And if they do, I tell you what, if one of those parties, one of those fourth, fifth, sixth parties wins, We'll find something that I will apologize and I don't know what I'll, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. I don't really want to run naked up and down main street playing a tuba. That would, you know, but I could probably make that claim and it would be fine. Are you inspired by the leaders that you will have to choose from who could actually win the election, who will become your premier or become your prime minister? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. We're going to take a break and come back and continue with this conversation. Let me know. You can also send me an email, radley at 900chml.com. And if you're not, if you are, I want to know why. If you're not, I want to know why. Just seems to me this is not a group that is moving people to feel giddy about going to the polls. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. So who are you excited about voting for? Not who are you going to vote for. All right. I know that many of you have your party, philosophical, political connections, your leanings. You're going to vote for the party in all likelihood that you would normally vote for. If you're a conservative, I don't expect that this election suddenly, probably you're going to suddenly go NDP and vice versa. If you've traditionally been an NDP voter, I don't suspect you're thinking, you know, I think I may try conservative this year. That's really not generally how it works. My question is, who among the leadership candidates, provincially or further down the road, federally, who are you excited about voting for as a leader? And I suspect the answer for many people is going to be, well, none of them. 
None of them. I might have really been excited about Justin Trudeau and changing things up a couple years ago, but Justin Trudeau has kind of turned me off with a lot of the stuff he's been doing and the mistakes he's been making and the comments that he's been offering. And Jagmeet Singh, as I say, now video is coming out of him speaking at separatist Sikh separatist rallies, and we question some of his thought process and decision-making and who he's aligning himself with and what's he really all about other than being another Justin Trudeau idea and, and Andrew Scheer. We don't know anything about Andrew Scheer. And then when we come down to the provincial level, Doug Ford, well, Doug Ford has already freaked out a whole bunch of people. Kathleen Wynne. I don't know if you're excited about Kathleen Wynne. A lot of people are really not excited about her party. Maybe you like her. Andrea Horvath. Maybe Andrea Horvath would be the one exception because she's maybe seems safer because of the thought that, well, she's not going to win. I don't know. Who are you excited about voting for of the leadership candidates? Or quite frankly, are you excited about any of them? Fred joins us now. Fred, how are you tonight? Not that. You pretty well said everything I was going to say. <laughs> I don't like any of them, really. Uh, but I hear, uh, Fred, I'm getting that sense from an awful lot of people. Right. Well, what gets me too, Scott, is this. I live in Hamilton here. Hamilton Wentworth, for some reason, always got the NDP, and the NDP is no damn progress ever since Bob Ray has never done any good. But they keep voting in this area for a new de- Democratic Party. I don't know why, because they're not in power, so nothing changes in Hamilton Wentworth. It stays the same. It stays behind the gloom and doom. But Fred, that's exactly what I was just saying a moment ago. People that have a political affiliation or a political leaning generally don't change that that much. And so you're going to, wherever you are in the city, if you've got a cluster and that's that's where it's going to go, that's the voting. That's where it's going to be. I understand that. But a lot of people that I understand too, Scott, don't understand politics. Like I just explained to you, like if you have a party that you know is going to get in power, you get more monies and everything coming to your city where you live. But if they're not in power, all they, they can talk to the wall anytime they want or to the hand. They don't get nothing done. And that's what's wrong. A lot of people just go there and put an X because, sure, they get a certain person running in their area, which they like, and they vote for a PC or whatever, and that's the individual they vote for. I understand that. But if you don't vote for somebody that you know pretty well gets into power, you have nothing. So what's the sense of voting? Well, That's why I say all of them are the same. Like, like I was maybe. Just are you think they are the all the same? There, Fred, I you just think- went and got my income tax done. I make a minimum wage now. I got the $14. Now I have to pay more to the income tax back because I made too much money. And everything that I was getting has gone down because I'm making too much. Fred, we we seem to have gone off track a little okay, bit, and I got well, to get back to it. That's okay. No, I understand. The governments don't help anybody with their policies. They're hurting everybody. And I'm a pensioner, and a lot of us pensioners out there with Trudeau, like Trudeau with U.S. Steel and that, he's not helping us. Like the pensioners having trouble. Everything these guys come up with policies don't help us. And when she's killing us too, she got rid of middle class. It's just rich and poor now. It's got all these people in politics are only thinking about their own selves, not thinking about you and I. Fred, I appreciate your call. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Let me take from that. Fred is not excited about any of the candidates. (laughs) But I laugh about it, but it's it's the underlying thing. You have... you have two reasons 
to vote more often than not. I mean, again, actually, it's a third. You have three reasons. One, because you're a good citizen and you say, I'm going to vote regardless. I'm going to vote for someone because I want to be part of the democratic process. But the other two reasons are either that you really believe in somebody and their platform and their party and their plan, or you're really angry. Lately, it seems like we vote for anger. That's what we've been doing. There is a reason why in the States it goes back and forth, and there's anger, and it swings. There's a reason why Stephen Harper got voted out. People were angry. People were ready for a change. In these two elections that will be coming up, much sooner the provincial one, but later the federal election, I don't get the sense that people are angry. Well, they're angry at what's going on, but the leaders, people are bleh at what's going on. They don't, there's nobody that I'm hearing that people are saying as a leader, I can't wait to go cast a ballot to put that person into office. That's a bad spot to be in. That's a depressing spot to be in. That really is that we don't have somebody. Now you may, you may differ. Send me an email at Radley at 900 CHML.com. You didn't speak up, but that's okay. We don't have that person, it seems, who we desperately want to rally around. What we have is the lesser of all evils. That's a depressing place to be. Surely there are people out there that could provide that. They're just not in front of us right now. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. You can call me Queen Bee. I don't think they're going to call Meghan Markle Queen Bee. They're going to call her... Princess M? I, I don't know. Maybe they call her Princess Megan. I don't know what she's going to be called. I don't know what she's going to be called. But you know who I'm talking about. She's marrying Prince Harry on May 19th, the one-time Toronto resident who is now going to become part of the royal family. But here's what you probably don't know when you want to become a royal. I didn't know this, but these are reports out of Britain that are telling quite a story about what her preparation is to become a member of the royal family. And you're thinking right now that what I'm talking about is, well, she has to learn which cutlery to use to eat from the outside in and which crystal to sip from and which plate and which little finger to hold up when she sips her. No, 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 none of that stuff. I mean, I'm sure she's going through that kind of etiquette stuff as well. But the stories coming out of England about her training to be a royal... No, this is serious, hardcore royal training. According to these reports out of the United Kingdom, the 36-year-old underwent a two-day terror training course, basically teaching her as a future royal, if something really bad happens and terrorists or kidnappers or whoever else were to attack, here's how you survive. I did not think that this would be in the guidebook for a future princess. I'm not imagining that when she said yes to Prince Harry, who was on one knee, he says, will you marry me and take a course? Well, they will fire live ammunition over your head. That's what they're doing. So apparently, according to this, they took her, the SAS, the British Secret Service, Special Air Service, took future Princess Markle out to the British countryside for this worst-case scenario emergency training. And among the different things that they had to do with her that she had to go through over two days, there was a kidnap and rescue portion in which ta- at which time they actually, well, she knew what was going on. That would have been really something. But any- they kidnapped her. They took her hostage. 
I don't know how they do it. I don't know if they throw her in the trunk of a car with a bag over her head. I don't know how kidnappy they actually get to do this proper training. But while rescuing her, this is the part that blew me away. While rescuing her, they were using live ammunition, the story says. (laughs) Which seems like a rather high-risk maneuver for a future princess. But they say, well, they had to use live ammunition so that she would be able to, down the road, if it happens, discern between the sound of live ammunition and blanks. Here's a suggestion. If I'm the future, this sounds odd. If I'm the future princess of England and I'm in a hostage situation in real life, I'm probably not going to have great recall about the sound of bullets, blanks, or real live ammunition in that circumstance, especially when there's nothing to compare it to. I'm probably not thinking, oh, let me go back to my training. Yes, that has the distinct ring of a blank. Not that, I'm not sure that this was actually necessary unless she's kidnapped tomorrow and it's fresh in her mind. Because again, imagine if she's kidnapped 40 years from now. You think she's going to remember the difference? Anyway. Uh, they also did other things. They taught her outdoor survival skills, which again, you got to think through this. So now Meghan Markle, future princess, has been kidnapped, but because she's an actress and has skills and learn some fighting moves, I guess, on set. This would be an awesome movie. The future princess escapes from the hostage takers and runs away. And now she's living off dandelions and bees, I guess, out in the British wilderness. I, I Again, I, I'm not entirely sure about the outdoor survival skills. Surely if the princess of England was kidnapped... Every single member of the British army would be out looking for her. She probably would not have to be rubbing sticks together and starting a fire that way or eating fire ants to get by. I I would like to think that probably if she escapes, there's going to be someone to collect her reasonably quickly. Otherwise, what exactly is the British Secret Service doing? Nonetheless, it continues. That's not all she had to learn. She was also taught how to, and this was an odd one, create a relationship with potential kidnappers. Hello, I'm Princess Markle. Well, yeah, we know. That's why we kidnapped you. How much relationship could she actually build with these people? You would. She's not exactly unfamous. They would know who she is. Yes, it. it, um, She apparently. So anyway. The, the person who has been through this, a person who's been through this before, a former senior army intelligence officer, said that the experience, not surprisingly, was physically and psychologically grueling, designed to frighten the life out of anyone. That sounds nice. And here's the other thing. Every member of the royal family has been through this. Except, yeah, except the queen. <laughs> I, I can't have this image of them hustle, of kidnapping the queen and throwing her in the trunk of a car. Look, if the queen goes missing, if someone's able to kidnap the queen, something has gone horribly wrong with your secret service. Well, that's, that was what Meghan Markle did on her weekend. So, you know, next time you think, wow, she's got an easy life. She's living the high life now as a member of the royal family, just sitting in castles and sipping Chardonnay. Well, yeah, but she's also being kidnapped and spending a weekend out surviving in the wilderness. So if that makes you feel any better that you're not a future princess, well, there you go.
Hope that helps. But she is, of course, under 24 armed, 24 hour a day, seven days a week armed protection. So I'm thinking that the chances of something happening unless she decides to play capture the flag for real is not really going to be relevant to her. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I am generally, as a rule, wary of conspiracy theories. It's not that they can't be true or couldn't be true. It's just that too often, too often, believing in them requires fantastical leaps of faith or they're based on nothing but a rumor or information that's been handled along the way through the years, like sentences in a game of broken telephone. They just kind of fall apart. But what you get at the end leads you to a conclusion that can't be supported. So I was admittedly skeptical when I stumbled onto a TV show a while back on History Channel called Hunting Hitler. And the idea, in short, was that it was an investigation into long thought of, long held beliefs in some corners that Adolf Hitler didn't die in his bunker at the end of World War II, but escaped Germany somehow, fled to South America, probably Argentina, and lived out his days there. Zany? Well, at first you might think so. At first I thought so. Now, after watching this, I'm not so sure or at least I will say I am definitely now far more willing to reconsider the story, the official story from history. And I think my next guest will share those doubts. Bob Baer is a former CIA operative who's been described as, and this is a quote, perhaps the best on-the-ground field officer in the Middle East. Uh, he is the agent after whom George Clooney's character was modeled in the movie Syriana. And more recently, he was the centerpiece of this History Channel show called Hunting Hitler that ran for three seasons. He joins me now. Bob, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into... Um, everything you found, and we it's going to be obviously a very condensed everything you found. But before we get into that, when they approached you to do this show and came forward with this idea to say, we'd like you to investigate this, did you doubt the official record? Did you have any reason prior to doing this to doubt the official record? No, I was in Berlin when I was a young kid, and my mother walked me past the chancellery and said, you know, Hitler... Uh, committed suicide in the bunker, which is is you know as a parking lot now, and that was that was the history. He was he died in that bunker. End of story. And then the History Channel comes to me and says, "Yeah, that's fine, but what if we just took the FBI documents after World War II and followed them to see if and, and the documents basically said that Hitler got away." And I said, "That's just that's crazy," but. I'll, I'll follow the documents. That's fine. You know, well, we're going to come to the same conclusion that he died in the bunker. And, and that's the way I approached it. It is it's sort of a, a futile exercise, which could be interesting, a lot of travel and the rest of it. And then we started coming up with stuff that I just could not believe. And that uh, the thing that still gets my attention is a compound in the tri-border region uh, on you know it's it's between Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay. That's clearly a Nazi compound. I mean, this is not. You're right. This is like we're in conspiracy country now, but it's a German compound. Weapons were found. It's there's an archaeological dig by the University of Buenos Aires. There were personal pictures belonging to Hitler. I said, what is going on here? And then, you know, I had barracks and, and a, a house, a villa with its own water source. Because every other Nazi who went to Argentina lived in the open. They didn't, they didn't hide at all. They didn't even change their names. So I said, who could this possibly be other than Hitler? 
Um, we left it at that. And then you start going through uh, the FBI documents about communication site, long buried, which we found. And then there was a crazy story about Hitler going to an opera in Brazil. <laughs> I said, oh, come on. <laughs> And then we get into the records, and there was a private showing that night. Now, nothing about Hitler going there. So, you know, I think, all right, this is going to be one season. Uh, Eisenhower said that Hitler got away. Stalin wondered whether he got away. Um, the, the cranium, which was supposed to be Hitler's, which we got out of the archives in Moscow, we turned out from DNA exfoliation from that to be a woman's. And that's, let me stop yeah, you there for different. just a sec, if I can, Bob, because this is really, if I understand it correctly, and, and certainly I'm not the all-time expert on this, but if I understand it correctly, the one piece of physical evidence that had been considered to exist that demonstrated that Adolf Hitler had died in the bunker, there are eyewitnesses and other people, but the one piece of physical evidence was this piece of a skull that had a bullet hole in it. Is that correct? And that's it. And that's, that's it. it. And it well, turns out that that's not really him. His mandible is supposed to be in KGB headquarters in Moscow. And I've gone to the KGB and said, can we go look at it? And they said, well, I tell you, you, you go to the embassy in, in Washington, D.C. and ask if you can and film it. And I said, what are they going to say if we go to the press out of shit? They're going to say, forget it. Never. <laughs> so no one's ever looked at this and done a, you know, a DNA test of this mandible. So it, it's a big question mark. But you're right. There's no, there's no body. There's also no contemporaneous eyewitness when he supposedly shoots himself and is pulled out of the bunker. His butler said, yeah, I saw a body go by, um, and I assumed it was Hitler's. And then they threw gasoline on it, and there was a blanket over it and a bird. Later on, a bodyguard come out, but it wasn't contemporaneous, and you really have to wonder about his story of so many years later that he either lost his mind or just invented this whole thing. So we don't have an eyewitness. We have the will, um, but if, if you're going to escape, why not make a fake will, a last testament, uh, to make everybody believe you were dead? That's what, that's what you would do. And then we started getting into these other seasons. We kept, the more we dug into the record, and let, let me emphasize this, from 1945 to 1955, if you look at the written records of, of the Nuremberg trial, of independent witnesses, uh, you know, all around the world, like SS officers. There's a route, and there's a chronology that he got, he gets out. He flies out of Berlin on through the Tiergarten, which they had turned into a, a makeshift airport. He flies into central Germany, goes to Denmark, and all these witnesses, they're, they're all, this is before the Internet, you know, they're, and you say, maybe this guy did get away. He went north, gets to Norway. He takes a, a, a seaplane. They were flying seaplanes to South America. And then gets to Missiones. Now, you and I know, well, this is, this is fine up to 55. But somebody, you know, at this point would come forward and say, yeah, I protected Hitler. But there's none of that. It's just like the record disappears in 55. Um and we have all these leads. It, it's a, it's a, it, for me, the conceit of going through the record and looking at this stuff, I, and, I, and I, we've shown it to you know, FBI, CIA, a bunch of people, and they said, yeah, we, this is enough to set 
a complete off a complete search looking for Adolf Hitler. There's enough. And with the FBI agent I interviewed at the end of season three, says I've found fugitives with much less information than this. And I would have gone to the director of the FBI and said, we need a full-on manhunt. The fact, okay, so for me, when there is no physical evidence, that at least opens me up to saying, okay, I this no longer is completely crazy. I'm willing to now listen to this because I always assumed, because that was always the story, that that was his skull, therefore we can prove that's him, therefore story closed. But beyond that then, Bob, how does, let's even before the internet, even before social media, before cable television, he was still well photographed. He was arguably at the time the most recognizable person on the planet. Even if he didn't die in the bunker, how does he possibly get himself out of Germany as all of his enemies are now closing in? They're almost around Berlin. How does that happen that he could escape from that to get to somewhere else? Well, what happens, there's, there's, a, there's a nice, it's a neat chronology and it works. On the 21st, all of his personal belongings are flown out of Berlin, which is odd in itself. It's on the 21st of April, 1945. They leave, they leave Tempelhof, big airport. Tempelhof, a couple days later, is closed. You can't get out because of the artillery. But what we found, and we, we just dug it up, is what we call the Fifth Tunnel, which goes from the Chancellery underground all the way Tiergarten, which is the sort of central park in Berlin. And we found pictures at the end of World War II that they had cut down the light poles so small planes could take off from the Tiergarten. And a couple did. We, there's, there's a record of this. So there's, so there's a connection out. from his bunker right basically to the airport? To the airport. And it was, it's clear. I mean, it's, 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 it's archaeological. It's, uh, you know, it, it's physical evidence that this was meant to go from the chancellery to the airport and get out of hmm. Berlin. Okay. All right. So now he gets on, and I know in the in the series, and people, again, we can't cover everything. It was a three-year, a three-season series. They can watch it on history.ca and find the things. But he then flies and takes uh, uh, seaplanes and other things. We know that we've known for years that there were Nazi enclaves in South America that other Nazis had made it there. I know that um, I was just watching it today, back in 1994, a remarkable piece of television. Sam Donaldson, was, when he was with ABC, confronts a former Nazi captain, Eric Pripka, on the street of Bariloche and interviews him. We know that they were down there. Uh, this would not be ridiculous to say that he may have got there because other Nazi leaders had been there. But other okay, you talked about that opera. Is there are there eyewitnesses? Are there people there who, in the records, would have said, besides just that he may have attended an opera? Are there people who said, yes, we saw Adolf Hitler when he was down in South America? There's he was really here. There, there are multiple sources, but as a former intelligence officer, I don't necessarily trust him. You, you've got people in that period, and. Um, they're, 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 they're not the best witnesses. So what, what I always prefer to do is take documents and, um, yeah, I mean, there was, there were quite a few witnesses that put him there, but there was like a, a, a what we forget is there was, there was a, a, a extensive hunt for Adolf Hitler after World War II, especially when Stalin said he might've got away. I mean, we all sort of forget that. So even though they officially said he was dead, they were still looking. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eisenhower said the same thing. And I mean, Eisenhower at one point figured that he was going to go south to Birch's Garden, and he was so convinced that Hitler was going to leave and flee that he sent a division to cut off his his escape. I mean, people were acting on the belief that Hitler was on his way out of Germany, possibly to South America. You know, you you've got you've got a couple historians that just say flat out he died in the bunker, but they are citing second and third hand witnesses and they don't actually have a German who said, Yeah, I pulled the blanket back, I saw Hitler, I saw Eva Braun, um anything like that. And that's that's what we're really missing. Now you see you can get into a story like this and still believe he died in the bunker, but it's it's fascinating for me to look at the evidence, the intelligence. And and that's really the backbone of this this whole series is we just assume things mm. that, that Hitler dies uh, you know, in, in the spring of 45, and that's the end of the story. But the history, we, we had moved on so quickly from the Second World War, people didn't really want to deal with it. Um, and then, you know, then they kept on getting these leads that he got away. And there's one other and, thing, and, Bob, that really strikes me about this, is that with some of the stuff that you found, and you talk about this compound that, uh, that you discovered and, and all these other places, even if he didn't, it sounds at least as if they were preparing for the eventuality that he might. So, so the plan may have been there that he was going to try to, perhaps, whether he did or not. I think absolutely. I think they had set up uh, an escape route. Uh, and, there's, of course, there's a lot of missing documents. There was, a, there was a, a fjord that was bombed in Norway at the end of the war, major bombing, and it actually they sunk a, a seaplane. So they were expecting something uh, out of Narvik, Norway, to fly out. And I assume it was Hitler, that they had some sort of... Uh, and then, then there are intercepts of seaplanes that were practicing going to South America. And the seaplanes would take off, and then a U-boat would refuel them in the middle of the Atlantic, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. I, I had no idea that they had that ability we assumed that a U-boat going all the way to Argentina would be too much for somebody for his health. Um, but again, let me go back to the eyewitnesses. You know, it's it's in that same compound in Misiones, the University of Buenos Aires, dug up a stomach medicine, a German stomach medicine that we know Hitler was taking. Huh. Uh, it was it was buried in the ground, and along with that was was very fine bone china, German bone china, which may have been Hitler's. So yeah, they may have been preparing. They may have they may have some general may have come to Hitler and said, "Hey, we have a way for you to get out, and we have a compound. But you're out in the middle of nowhere. No one would ever find you. You know, it's it's a five day walk from from civilization. This compound, and it's you not even the." the the most wanted drug dealer in the world would move that remotely <laughs> in the middle of the jungle, triple canopy, no way to see it from up, and there's no villages, nobody around. And what were German troops doing in Argentina in the middle of nowhere? Who were they guarding? But if these documents, the one part about this that really nags at me is that if these documents existed and if the U.S. and British and other governments were still believing that he was alive and had maybe gone there or gone somewhere else, 
I don't recall hearing of vast movements of, of, of armies or of people or even investigators to go find him. If they believed that he was in Argentina or Paraguay or Uruguay or somewhere, would, the, would those governments not have sent massive forces to try and dig him out? No, because what happened is by, by 46, you've got the Cold War and you've got American intelligence Nobody is going to take resources and look for Germans in okay. Argentina. Okay. Because so many of these Nazis at this point are being, you know, Operation Paperclip are being taken in, in aligning with the United States against the Soviet Union. Um, so there were just, there was nobody, there was no travel order saying, hey, go look at this compound. We've heard about Missiones. The FBI didn't go up there. The CIA didn't. The military didn't. Um, or the fact that the Nazis were building nuclear bombs or trying to in Argentina at Bariloche. I mean, you can see this stuff now. They had a reactor, and they had a site where they were testing uh, triggering devices for nuclear weapons. It was technology that had been taken from Germany. So at the very least, you had Nazis in South America who were planning on the Fourth Reich. It doesn't mean Hitler necessarily made it there, but you you can count on it. These people were, were there, and they didn't think the war was over. But by that point, let's not forget that Argentina was co- controlled by Perón, and Perón was a neo-fascist, and he wasn't about to let Americans, mm. academics or journalists, wander around looking for Nazis because they were everywhere. And, he, you know, it's, it wasn't going to happen. You may have just have answered my next question about with the idea of the Fourth Reich, but Hitler was born in 1889, and if my math is right, that means that today he would be 129. So even if he had escaped, he's long dead by now. No one's suggesting otherwise. So does this then matter in any way in 2018? I mean, it's certainly interesting. There's no question about that. But when we look at this story, if he did escape, does it still resonate? Is there some, is there something there that would make this really matter now? Well, it does because we see so many parallels. We see al-Qaeda being defeated in Afghanistan and popping up in Syria. And we, we see the whole idea of fascism didn't die in 1945. And we see fascism popping up in, in this country, for one. And this, this whole, you know, they found it near Washington, D.C. Uh, there were some Abwehr officers who had been caught and, and were executed during World War II. And it wasn't all that long ago that they found a little memorial that some Nazis, American Nazis, had put up on these Abwehr guys. So I just like, I just, for me, intellectually, I like the idea of this continuity of, of you know, this, this politics of hate and radicalism will continue on even after the disappearance of a leader like bin Laden or the Nazis. And, you know, it's it's hard to kill a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. You went into this clearly when we started talking. You went into this as a skeptic, maybe even more than a skeptic. You leave this describing yourself as what then? In 1955, if someone would have sat me down, they said, did Hitler get away? And I looked at the documentation, the testimony, the physical evidence, and I would say that he did get away. But if you ask me today, in 2018, because there's no witnesses, he died in the bunker. Bob Barrett, you can catch season three of Hunting Hitler. It's currently on video on demand. All three seasons are going to re-air on History Channel 2 starting in April. 
And Bob's special, JFK Declassified, the new files will air on History Channel Monday, March 26th. And again, you can go to history.ca to watch video of Hunting Hitler. Sir, really appreciate the time today. Fascinating stuff. It was a, it was a really interesting show, and uh, you did a great job. Thanks for taking the time. And like I said, I hate conspiracy theories too, but this is <laughs> fascinating. Bob Bear, thank you for the time. Thanks. That is, uh, that is one that, again, I, I when I first heard about this it was like yeah right okay this is this is one of those things that you're just trying you're dropping hitler's name into a show to try and get people to watch go oh it's hitler okay what i didn't know and i'm going to go back and i'm not going to take a lot of time in this what i didn't know what i had always just assumed from what i'd heard is that there was that that skull that they found that the soviets apparently got that was that was hitler's that was my I mean, I didn't really think about it all that much because they had his skull. How could he not be dead then? There's not a lot of people walking around missing their skull who were still alive. He must have been dead. It had a bullet hole in it. And in 2008 or 2009, when they tested the skull that they had, that the Soviets had picked up with the bullet hole and found out that it was a 30 to 40-year-old woman, that does not exactly match Adolf Hitler. You start to wonder. And again, I would... You know what? It's a, it was a really, really interesting show. I would go take a look at it because it. you may believe at the end. You may not believe at the end. You may be a complete cynic. You may be a complete skeptic. Or you may end up thinking to yourself, huh, I wonder. But that's where I was. I just, I wonder. Makes, I mean, in one sense, it makes no difference now because he would be 129. He'd be long dead. He's not starting any more trouble now. But it really is an interesting position. Is it possible? Is it possible that Adolf Hitler did not die in his bunker in Berlin at the end of the war? Is it possible that he got away? And you know what? I still don't know the answer to that, but I am less absolute about the fact that he did die there than I was before. Again, uh, go to his, history.ca, you'll find, or just go online and look up Hunting Hitler, and then go to history.ca, you'll find the stuff. And again, all three seasons will be re-airing on History Channel 2 starting in April if you are interested in this. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.